Hello, everybody. I'm Christine Passarella. I am the host of the podcast, Beauty, Love, and Justice. The idea of my podcast came from my column, Beauty, Love, and Justice, Living a Coltranian Life, which can be found on allaboutjazz.com. The idea of my podcast came from this sort of exploration I had, you know, wondering how many people live lives that I believe a, a Coltranian life. I call it a Coltranian life. It doesn't even mean that you have to be a fan of John Coltrane, which many people I talk to are. But what it does mean is that I believe there are people who are passionate, committed to making a difference in this world and have made huge sacrifices uh, in that way to make sure they go on um, a journey that is honorable, filled with virtue and um, just caring about one another. Today, my, my guest, and I am honored to bring in um, the jazz video guy. Uh, his, his name is Brett Premack, and he is better known as a jazz video guy. He is an educator. He's educated me via his amazing videos and a filmmaker. And um, his expertise in jazz has taught me so much over the years. He, I don't think he um, knew that I've been following his work, although I did uh, benefit from webinars he had when I was first getting into the idea of um, education for um, uh, adults. I was, uh, I'm a retired school teacher, but mainly I, I taught children my whole life. But the idea of sharing my um, interest in jazz with uh, adults what uh, was new for me, and Brett was doing that and does it exquisitely. So he is a master. So Brett, welcome to my podcast, Beauty, Love, and Justice. Thank you for spending uh, some of my this day with me. Well, so how are you, you doing today? I am well. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to see your face, and uh, I love the, the the name of your podcast. Thank you. I, I, that came from a, a speech that Dr. King gave to middle school children and uh, there was this line where he was telling the children to uh, have beauty love and justice in their lives so it, i i appreciate that but i want to give the credit to dr king thank you cool so how so how you're in arizona right like you 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 are in the the warmth of arizona has it because we have we had really bad weather overnight here so you must be happy you left the East Coast for that reason. Well, I don't miss the <laughs> snow and I don't miss the cold. Here yeah. at the trade-off is from like May 15th till September 15th, it's like 100 degrees at least every day. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So but I guess you, you know, you have central air and all that to keep yourself. And solar yeah. power. Wow. Nice. 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 Yeah. So you have a good life. So you're happy you made the move from... You know, honestly, I still wrestle with it in some ways because uh, in many, let me say this, like once you live in New York City, and I lived there from 68 to 2001, you know, it's a drop off. It's a cult. It's a big difference culturally. Mm. Um, certainly a place like Arizona, uh, the demographics are changing here, but, you know, it's a red state and I'm a blue guy. So there's certain, you know. I don't want to say conflict, but uneasiness sometimes. But the you know just like the, the the variety of options in a big city, you just don't get that in a small town. Yeah, yeah. I know that you interviewed a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, 
Javon Jackson. And I learned from that interview that you uh, lived in that area in Connecticut for a while. Are you from that area? Do I have that right? I'm from uh, West. I'm from West Hartford, Connecticut, which is where the uh, University of Hartford is, where Javon teaches. Yeah, so that, I found that interesting. Yeah. I was contemplating moving, and I haven't decided yet. I'm on Long Island, and um, I went to West Hartford. You know, I was just looking at the the neighborhood and. I don't know where I'm going to land, but I'm, I, I keep checking out different areas. So I, I took a trip up to West Hartford, and it's quite lovely, really beautiful area. It's I liked a it. Bucolic place. So you live in Queens now? No, I'm on Nassau County. I'm in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Franklin Square, Garden City South area, yeah. Um, yeah. which is close to the city. You know, it's it's I I like it for that reason. I like it for many reasons, but having access to the city and the jazz clubs and all of that. Um, yeah. You know, I I lived in Manhattan for a while and uh, I found it. My daughter lived in Manhattan. So I, I miss it. I, I, with COVID and everything, I'm, I wear a mask. <coughs> I had COVID. I think I told you. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I take it very, very seriously. And, um, but I, I miss live jazz. I miss going into the clubs. I, I miss all of that. Oh, yeah. It's, like, it's, yeah. I mean, since I moved here, very little live jazz, but still some. Uh, yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden that disappears and you can't, like, hang out with anybody. And it's just it's been a yeah. weird nine months. Yeah. It's very been, strange. Very strange. But I keep looking at the blessings in the in the disasters, and I, I know there's blessings. <laughs> so, anyway, I just wanted, if you don't mind, like, to, to uh, explore your story a little bit. There's sure. a few... Um, Topics I'd like to get to, but I would, if you don't mind, like I was wondering if you could take us back to your childhood and what do you think shaped your uh, filmmaking and your particular passions? Uh, because one thing about a Coltranean journey that I find the very unique people, their journeys took them to places that are extraordinary in my mind. And you're one of those people to me. So what shaped you as a child and then eventually get you to, I believe, NYU? Let's right. See, well, you know. uh, my father was a pianist, so musical household. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, when I was nine years old, we got our first hi-fi system and they bought two records. One was the soundtrack from the Broadway play My Fair Lady. And the mm. other one was Duke Ellington plays the Nutcracker Suite. And, of course, I knew the Nutcracker Suite, but hearing it that way was like a revelation. And then around the same time, I saw Louis Armstrong on The Ed Sullivan Show. And I just wanted to climb inside the TV and be part of that. I mean, it really, really spoke to me. So I, I, yeah. started, I started playing. There was a really good music education program in West Hartford School System. I started playing the trumpet when I was in fourth grade. And then I began to meet other trumpeters and, hey, have you heard Chet Baker? Have you heard Miles Davis? And then Maynard Ferguson and Dizzy Gillespie and Lee Morgan. And then I was lucky in that Hartford is halfway between New York and Boston. So guys would go up to Boston on weekends to Paul's Mall or the Jazz Workshop or Lenny's on the Turnpike. And then we'd come back through Hartford on Sunday night. They would play a gig. So, you know, 14 years old, I'm already seeing like Cannibal Adderley, Yusuf Latif, Rasad Roland Kirk, uh, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Stan Kenton, Maynard Ferguson. I mean, and then, you know, that was it. But at the same time, 
My dad was into taking home movies. I guess that's the first like uh, connection I had to uh, filmmaking. And the other thing was when I was five or six, my mom took me to New York where I was on the peanut gallery of the Howdy Doody show. Wow. <laughs> and I was Very like, impressive. I love I, that. <laughs> yeah. So when I was a little guy, I used to sit right in front of the TV and, and check it out. And then all of a sudden, here I am in a studio seeing like the whole thing happens. And it just was fantastic. I mean, it, it left a big impression on me. So as I got older, I had like two parallel interests. One was jazz. Because once I get into it, I mean, my interests just grow, grew. And, uh, and filmmaking. And I, I didn't really think about being a filmmaker. I was like, I just liked films. And I started seeing a lot of films. And when I was a teenager, I started seeing foreign films. And uh, when I was a junior in high school, uh, the filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola came to a conference where he spoke about screenwriting and, and uh, directing. And I saw him up there on the stage and I said, that's what I want to do. He was just such a dynamic presence. Uh, I ended up writing him a letter and uh, saying, you know, do you think I should go to film school? And he was really nice to me. And then actually... Yeah actually met him uh, in Long Island. He was shooting a film called Rain People in 1967. I was able wow. to actually meet him and George Lucas, who was his assistant at the time. Wow, that's incredible. And then I, that's, you know, so my, I was not a very good student. So the first year of college, I went to Hofstra, and, uh, which has a good theater program, but, which I should have focused on because theater is important with film, but I wanted to yeah. make movies. I transferred to NYU Film School. And then here I was making films and in New York City, the jazz capital of the world. And, you know, it was, it was just fantastic. And I took a, after I graduated film school, I worked in documentaries and industrials. But here's something that you could probably relate to. When I got to New York, I started hanging out in the kitchen of the Vanguard. I really didn't wow. know musicians nice. at that point, but just being on a, being a fly on the wall there, uh, you know, being part of the community. I mean, it, they were unique. And of course, when I grew up, I thought musicians were gods, you know, I mean, but they're not gods, they're regular human beings, some better than, you know, some, I mean, you know, it's a scale. Some are scumbags, some are geniuses. I mean, the whole thing, just like anything else. <coughs> Excuse me. But I got to be friends with a lot of musicians. And I ended up, a friend of mine was Clark Terry's protege, and uh, at that time, the pianist Walter Bishop Jr. had joined Clark Terry. So I got to hang out with Walter Bishop. He was really the first musician I got to know seriously. And uh, he said, gee, no one's did an has done an article about me in years. Do you think you could write one? I said, I'll try. I never wrote an article before. So we, I did an interview. This is like December 76. I did an interview with him and I sent it to Downbeat Magazine. Lo and behold... I got published and that's how, oh. and suddenly my emphasis was to take it away from filmmaking. I really got into like jazz writing and uh, this was the late seventies, early eighties. I was writing a lot. I became the East coast editor of downbeat magazine and I was writing a lot of stuff, writing a lot of liner notes and, you know, really excited going to hear the music a lot. And uh, let's see, the next big thing was in 84, I got my first computer. Because uh, I hated I hated uh, 
retyping all my stuff. You know, every time you want to do another draft, you got to retype the whole thing. I discovered word processing, got into the computer. That was the early days of computer-to-computer uh, co communication. You know, you would plug your, your computer into the phone line and you would call another computer. And they had this thing called bulletin boards. So you leave messages and get email. And I really got into it. And just that, that interest began to grow. And then in the 90s, uh, I discovered the web. That's when it first came out. And I wrote an article for Jazz Times Magazine. It was ready for Jazz Times in the 90s about uh, how the internet was going to be great for jazz. And a guy named Larry Rosen, who used to be a, a, a record label owner, sold his label, GRP Records, and uh, made uh, walked away with about $10 million in cash. This was in 1994, decided he wanted to get to the internet. He called me up. He said, oh, we're going to do this jazz website. Would you be interested? Of course, I was interested in... And then uh, I got into the dot-com world. I was uh, one of the uh, people who started the Jazz Central Station, which had a lot of money behind it, uh, during the exciting dot-com era. Uh, but that didn't last uh, because there's, things were constantly changing. Uh, they had unrealistic expectations for revenue. And uh, it's, a, it's a whole other story, but... Uh, I left there, they went out of business, and I ended up working for another dot-com company, Global Music Network, uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, but a bit ahead of the curve, producing live concerts and webcasts at a time when no one really had broadband. Uh, so that didn't really work out, but I ended up producing the first some of the first jazz webcasts from Birdland in December of... Uh, 99 with the Dave Brubeck Quartet, Life of Birdland, and also the Saxophone Summit, which was Michael wow. Burke, Joe Lovano, and uh, Dave Liebman. Mm -hmm. And so that oh, suddenly I'm, you know, onto video on the web. And then uh, after that crashed, I started producing websites for people. And uh, someone asked me to interview, well, it was Telark Records. They, they, you know, they asked me to interview the saxophone summit. They were going to make a video. I said, sure, great. And because uh, Michael and <coughs> Joe and uh, Lieb are really good friends of mine. So it was fun and easy. Six months later, they sent me the video and it was horrible. And I said, wait a minute, you know, I don't, I haven't made a film in 30 years, but I know I can do better than that. You know, there were camcorders and computer editing. So... That was December 2004. I just started, you know, I was doing websites for Sonny Rollins and Joe Lovano and Denny Zeitlin. So I started doing, and Billy Taylor, started doing videos. And then suddenly YouTube arrived. And I started posting on YouTube of March of, two, of, of 2006. As I didn't want to call my channel Brett Premack. That's a little too difficult for people to remember. So, uh, Jazz Video Guy, you know, you, you know that name, you immediately know what it is. And I was really the first person posting uh, jazz content on YouTube, and it just took off. And uh, <coughs> there was still a record business that back then, so, the, you know, there was marketing money. People could pay me to make videos. I did a lot of stuff with Concord Records. They had a lot of money back then.
but that kind of that part of it fizzled out in 2012 because uh, of the uh, record business died. You know, moved over to streaming, Spotify, all that stuff. So, but I kept making films, um, and I did three documentary features. Uh, I did one about a big band trumpeter uh, from Florida, lead trumpet player Paulie Cohn. Another one about Brazilian jazz. Another one I did a film with Jimmy Heath. Uh, when I moved to Tucson, uh, I discovered there's a really cool jazz education program here. Jimmy ended up coming out here. We had been friends since the 80s. <coughs> uh, he did a clinic, and I saw there was a really remarkable... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A vibration, whatever, between these 16-year-old kids and this 90-year-old musician. So he came back, and I said, let me just do a film. And that's my, my, the last jazz-related feature I did, uh, Passing the Torch, which is available on Amazon Prime. And uh, to sum up this part of the story, since I moved to Tucson, I suddenly found myself more involved with the social causes that are here, the immigration issues. And uh, I also started teaching at a local community college. <coughs> So my focus, for the most part now, although I still do jazz, some jazz stuff, I do a weekly live show called Jazz Video Guy Live. But aside mm -hmm. from that, not too much jazz stuff. My focus now is social justice documentaries. And for the past two years, I've been doing a documentary about anti-Semitism in America. So that's my yeah. story. Wow. Well, you know, I, I've, again, a Coltranian journey is like extraordinary people have these extraordinary moments in their lives that add up and um, they leave you on a path or lead you to a path that uh, is really transformative. I mean, I'm, you know, when you were just mentioning as a school teacher, the, I think about as a mother, as a school teacher, the, you know, when you say the howdy doody show, it's, it, it sounds like not a big deal, but it is a big deal because uh, in, in your child mind, you, you ha it has this impact on you. And um, this idea that, um, you're literally there where the filmmaking is happening that is profound for you and it takes you to the next step i mean i think that we're the the television generation in many ways right yeah, so definitely. i think we were raised on similar shows um like for me fathers knows best or bewitched or whatever life yeah. was supposed to be and then as we get older not too much older we're, we're still young the reality of uh, the 60s, you know, these major uh, uh, events that happen in our time, whether it was JFK or Mar the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. or watching social justice uh, rise and rise and rise in our times, it does have an impact on us. And I think um, I feel for you, for sure, for me, for sure. But then for you, which was different, jazz... Um, I didn't have your experience with jazz. I, you know, I, I, Broadway music, Motown, all that music had big impact. Jazz doesn't hit me until I'm teaching and I'm older and I, I, I bring it to the children. And what you were saying about the vibrations, I saw the vibrations with the jazz music and the kids. And so when I discover you, I think I'm trying to go, trying to remember the first time, I think it was when I was trying to learn about jazz and do research 
lo and behold, there you were with all your your YouTube channel and all that. Um, and that's and I start to learn about jazz through you and what you were presenting. But um, you know, I think I told you, or I may have told you, uh, we didn't get a chance really to chat because I don't know you that well. But at uh, some point, uh, Nat Hentoff became my mentor. And um, it's, it's similar, like, you don't, you just like the journey, the jazz journey, jazz musicians and people surrounded in jazz seem so welcoming to me. You know, I, I've discovered and you probably uh, feel the same way. So I was really surprised, <coughs> excuse me, I was really surprised at how kind Nat Hentoff was to me. Um, he was so welcoming. He wanted, he, he thought what I was doing was very profound and important. And he gave me his attention and he, he definitely educated me. So, of course, I was interested in what made Nat Hentoff Nat Hentoff. And so if you, I don't know if you know uh, too much about his childhood, but he was from, uh, so I was wondering if you could speak to that because we were talking about social justice and jazz. Um, but I believe for Nat Hentoff as well, jazz and social justice go together as uh, a Jewish American. So he tells a story, I think it's in Boston Boy, how there was anti-Semitism right there. Yeah. And I was wondering if you, you knew any of that or could speak to that. Well, when I was growing up, I grew up baby boomer, you know, 50s, 60s. But I lived in a, a Jewish neighborhood, so to speak. Uh, my parents uh, came from Hartford, and the next step up uh, towards middle class for them is moving to West Hartford, as was the case with many Jewish people from Hartford. So I was kind of surrounded by uh, Jewish people when I was a kid. But I'm a cultural Jew. I'm a secular Jew. I have no religious training. I mean, that's just not part of my journey. But there's there's a principle in uh, Judaism called tikkun olam. And it, it, what it means is that you have a certain, as an individual, you have a certain responsibility to make the world better, to, uh, to make life better for other people. And unknowingly, that's always been part of my life. I mean, my parents were liberals. I grew up, they were a little uptight when I was demonstrating in the 60s, but they were supportive of it. And uh, their politics became my politics, although I took it a little further out. But I really didn't ex personally experience anti-Semitism until, but I knew about it because my parents survived uh, the Depression and World War II and the Holocaust. No one in my family uh, was taken in the Holocaust, thank God. Uh, but um, I really didn't think about it too much uh, until uh, after film school, I read the autobiography of a man who's become one of my favorite writers, a guy named Ben Hecht. Ben Hecht was the most... A celebrated Hollywood screenwriter in the 30s. He was kind of like the, the, uh, the Shakespeare of Hollywood. And uh, he, during World War II, got involved with a group of people from Eastern Europe uh, who, were who came to the United States to enlighten America. It's what was happening with the massacre in Germany because it was largely forgotten here. Uh, it was in, always buried in the back page and uh, no recognition from Roosevelt, Churchill, or the Pope that there was uh, a massacre happening. So I couldn't believe the story that I read. I mean, I heard about the Holocaust, but wow, you know. So I got more into that. Turns out I ended up writing a play about him. I have another, another uh, 
aspects of my creativity. I've written seven plays, co-founded a theater company. So in, 90, in the early 90s, I wrote a play about Ben Heck called The Pariah. And um, that's the first time I, I dealt with the anti-Semitism issues. And then in 2018, the Tree of Life massacre, and that happened, and that blew my mind. And I said, i got to make a film about anti-Semitism. This is horrible. So that's where I've been the past two years. That's, so that's my anti-Semitism riff. Well, that, you know, I find, again, um, like, and I, I think I wrote in the email, a connection between social justice and jazz. And there's so much I, like, I want to unpack with you. Um, I, too, I was raised in, I think, a diverse neighborhood, but uh, profoundly, um, well, the college I went to had, was I would say, I didn't take a survey, but I think it was mostly uh, Jewish students I think I was the only Italian American. No, I'm kidding. But uh, possibly I went to Brooklyn College, and so um, most of my friends are Jewish. And my best friend, I was just chatting with her recently, uh, is Jewish. Her father was from Poland and was um, just the sweetest, kindest, most gentleman. But over time, she shared his story with me. Uh, she's an extraordinary woman, and her father was an extraordinary man. She's an extraordinary mother. And uh, we talk about the journey of her, her, her sons. One of them is in medical school. And all this. But we go back to her dad in, in Poland, and he was, in, um, he was able to escape the Nazis, but he wound up in these Russian, she calls them slave camps. And uh, she sent me a picture of him in the, in the camp, like a pic, they had a, a photograph. And you could see in this young man's face, he's only maybe 19, 20, the pain in his face. And then she tells you the journey of how eventually he gets out of the Russian camps and then eventually, 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 eventually gets to New York, like just a beautiful soul. So, um, any kind of prejudice and hatred is really uh, in my heart to try to affect change. Um, even when you see with little children, it's, it, it, one of the things I was doing as a school teacher was trying to bring love and kindness and character education. And I found jazz really complemented that uh, for me as a school teacher. Yeah. But it's it's so I started with a character education program. It's so important to me. So your work with anti-Semitism really resonates with me. And I, I would like to, if you don't mind, to speak more about that, um, what you're doing, how you're fighting it, and or how to enlighten people. Because I think ignorance um, is a real problem. Just Not just anti-Semitism, with uh, so many social justice issues that at least we have a fighting chance if we enlighten people. And the curriculum as a school teacher, I found lacking tremendously. And when I was trying to infuse more and more about what I was learning about the black culture um, and elevating, if you will, Coltrane, and it was intentional that I, I named my work after Coltrane because I was trying to elevate him. Um, he, I mean, not to say he wasn't already elevated, he's a master musician. I just wanted more people to know about him, children to know about him. I got uh, such pushback from the system. I cannot tell you from the higher ups. I was harassed and harassed. And Nat Hentoff told me, 
um, he was trying to protect me because he knew it was going to happen. I didn't know it was going to happen, but he knew it was going to happen. So it is a fight, you know, to try to uh, enlighten people. So my question is, do you see a connection between what Jewish people went through, the anti-Semitism, and I've been getting deeper and deeper into studying um, ADOS, they call it, the movement called ADOS. It's the American Descendants of Slavery, where uh, that group is trying to enlighten America and beyond about uh, the details about what African Americans went through from slavery through Reconstruction and so on. Do you see a, a connection? And now we land in 2020, going into 2021 without concerns. You know, I was wondering how you wrestled with all that. Well, definitely uh, America is a white nationalist country. Um, and we can't, the, the, the pilgrims, the folks from England came here. And the first thing they did is they committed genocide against 500 Indian nations who were living in harmony with uh, the earth. And then the next thing they did is they kidnapped 2 million Africans and brought them to the United States against their will as slaves. So that is deeply ingrained in the uh, firmware of the United States. And we see it playing out, sadly, uh, on a regular basis now. You know, the uh, white nationalists and, and neo-Nazis and, and the races certainly existed before Trump came along. They were kind of in the closet, so to speak, peeking out. He gave them permission. So now we've got these, we've got like, well, 70 million people voted for this guy. Not all of them are racists and anti-Semitic, but a lot of them are. And suddenly that's something that, you know, we have to deal with on a daily basis. Uh, you know, since I started working on this film, uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll do a film about anti-Semitism. Take me a couple of months. I'll interview a couple of people. I didn't realize how big it was. I didn't realize that I wasn't climbing a hill. I'm climbing Mount Everest on this project. I mean, uh. it's just huge. But I've been very lucky. Uh <coughs> There's a group of Holocaust survivors out here. So I've been working with them, interviewing them. Uh, Noam Chomsky teaches out here now at the University of Arizona. I got to interview him. That's terrific. And so it's really yeah. just about what you, what you mentioned. It's just about putting light onto it, you know, to, to show people what this is really about. Uh, whether it's uh, anti-Semitism or racism, uh, it really comes from ignorance, uh, it really comes from some kind of conditioning. I mean, when, when, when we're born, I mean, we don't have any prejudice. If you put two babies in a crib together or a year old, it doesn't matter what color they're, where they're from, they're going to play together. Five or six years later, they can hate each other based on what happens in their homes and what they hear. So I think that young people today, I, I have great hope in young people because of the uh, diversity of the internet, what people can check out, uh, I'm hoping that you know maybe we can change some of these attitudes with my film and other kinds of stuff. I don't know, but that's certainly what I'm working towards. I absolutely think that you're right in that we have to make the effort, we have to try. Um, and again, this Coltranian journey, and you know, I just feel blessed to know you and know of you and learn from you. 
because I find what you're doing so uplifting. You know, um, again, my work was incredibly successful and it was, it was sort of magical. Um, what, not just because I brought culture, I did this character education and I became a teacher. You mentioned George Lucas. He once said he tried, he became a filmmaker to, to create, I believe he said this, to uh, create the kind of films that he wanted to see. I became a school teacher to create the kind of classroom that I wished I was in that was loving and warm and, and let, allowed children to be who they were supposed to be, allow children to develop and not feel afraid of making a mistake. And I always felt like an orchestra leader, you know, it was like, to, um, I, my work was rooted in the theory of multiple intelligences, which came out of Harvard University, a gentleman named Howard Gardner developed the theory of multiple intelligences and it resonated with me. So that's what I was developing. And I was, you know, doing my, my, my part, you know, I knew it was just my part, my contribution. And, but you, when the forces of, above me came down to try to stop it, which was shocking to me. I learned a lot about life through this experience, but it could very, you know, much break your heart. And then I realized there were people like you out there doing your part. And of course, uh, you mentioned Noam Chomsky and, you know, we talked about Cornell West and it, it just made me realize that if you know when we talk about Coltrane's Love Supreme, that's what I think that's about. Coltrane's if we have Love Supreme in our hearts as individuals, if we don't give up collectively, that change can happen. But I do think in uh, education, as an educator, and, and, and you are as well, and a filmmaker that you are, um, we can really make that difference. What you're doing is huge and uh, I congratulate you on making the effort you know um, making that difference and because of your journey because you're so informed your your film will be profound and and uh, teach so many people I think uh, again, I congratulate you I have a cousin who's um I believe world-renowned and incredibly brilliant actor John Turturro and he's that kind of person. He, he brings to films an extraordinary um, talent and uh, purpose. His films are purposeful. And I, 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 I don't know if you know his work, but- I do, um, I love his work. Yeah. One of my favorite and, actors. And so it's like, oh, that, wow, that's so cool. So um, I'll send him, I'll make sure he gets his video as well. <laughs> So um, the audio. So um, yeah. So I do think that what you're doing is incredibly important, and I think that's our only hope is to um, continue. And uh, yeah, I think there are days that we could just feel. T I, I can imagine as you're making this film, there are moments that could make you weep. Um, yeah. So yeah, but, some of, some of the stories you know that I've encountered. I mean, you can't help but uh, have an emotional uh, reaction to it, and that's that's one of the things I'm going to try to try to do with my film, which is grab people emotionally, uh, so that they'll listen, they'll think about it. Uh, but you know, this is a country, this is a world filled with uh, uh, concern, you know, suspicion of the other. You know, I heard a Mel Brooks uh, routine, uh, the 2,000-year-old man. 
and he was talking about uh, when he, when they were back in the caves, you know, before we even left the caves. And one guy says to another, "Watch out for that guy in seven cave seventeen. He's no good." You know, like, and you know, it's the same thing now. People have these these pre, uh, uh, ideas about how people are based on how they look and where they're from, and that usually couldn't be further from the truth. And sadly, we have a lot of negative, evil forces on this planet that are broadcasting all that stuff to people, and they brainwash people. I mean, that's why those 70-plus million people voted for Trump. They're brainwashed. They're part of a cult. And I don't know how that's so, going to happen to change that. So, you know, yeah, so I think it's scary. I mean, I think that's something to look into about the um, where we are. You know, I think it was the... the the documentary uh, social dilemma it's it's just like i'm i'm afraid for that these like i think i started ted talk with you talking about imagery so do you have a solution like how it's a scary thing you know because i know people uh, and i'm not trying to make and i'm going to be political in the sense where i make a judgment about people who who are on the other side of my politics but they I know there a lot of good people who are uh, Trump voters who I who who tell me stories that they believe are facts, and I, I where are you getting this information from? And it's this imagery that's coming in. So, do you do you see a solution? Do you is there something that you think that society could do to make sure that people are getting the correct um, or at least the truth? Well, that word truth uh, means different things to different people. And we've become a lot more polarized as a country and as a culture, uh, suspicious of someone who's different than us. And when you've got a president who's spewing these lies, you know, Hitler quote, if you tell enough, if you tell a lie enough times, it'll be, people will think it's the truth. And, you know, you've got millions of people who thought, you know, Biden stole the election. You know, that's not true, but they believe it is truth right. because that's what they, that's what someone, their leader is telling that, is telling them that it's fake. It's fake every day for four years and their media, Terrifying. you know, Fox right. News and Rush Limbaugh and all the, all the, that bubble that exists. So I have found it very difficult to talk to these people. I go to a dog park a, a lot of days because I have a wonderful dog. He's hiding right now. But, I, you know, I talk to people at the park and you talk to some of these Trump supporters and like it's they are so far removed from reality. I have no idea how to, to reach them. So what I'm doing is just work that hopefully would, will inspire people to to dialogue, to, uh, you know, to understand where hate, especially with the Jews, where the hatred comes from. And of course, we go back to the. See, my, the block line of my film is that anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory propagated now by the Internet. And it started over 2,000 years ago with the rumor that the Jews killed Christ. So why the Jews be Oh, they killed Christ. And the Catholic Church supported this. I mean, it took till 1999 for the Pope to say, no, that's not true. So that was the, that's how anti-Semitism was fermented and built over the years. So I, my film, trying to show what happened to the Jews and also trying to show Jewish people is 
look at our contributions, look what we've done, look at who we are. And hopefully, I wanted one important aspect, I want to get as many kids as possible to see my film. I want to like it, make it available to uh, elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools and colleges, because kids, young people still have an open mind. And let's try to reach them. That's my solution. I, I agree with you. When will it be uh, finished? Do you have a, an date? Every school? time I think I'm, I'm close, I discover some new thing. You know, like the other day, I was thinking about, just a lot of, a lot of uh, Jews in show business have changed their names. Like uh, Winona Ryder is Winona Horowitz. Natalie Portman is Natalie Herschleck. Um Mel Brooks. Uh, From uh, Long What's that? <laughs> I missed that. She's from Long Island, Natalie. Right? Yeah. You know, so why did you know that? Okay, well, I can see why, you know, uh, in show business, uh, the Jews ran the Hollywood studios in the 20s and 30s and 40s. They were all Jews and they were afraid of putting, a, you know, like, uh, uh, a Jewish name on a marquee for, for fear people, you know, wouldn't come to the theater. So uh, a lot of these performers like change their names. And then I, I found a book, uh, uh, a professor wrote about actually the, this phenomenon of Jews changing their names in the twenties, thirties and forties, because there was discrimination. You know, when you filled out a job application, you had to put your religion in there. And that was the way that a lot of Jews were, kept from certain employment. What do they do? They change their names. You know, Rosenblum became Rose. Uh, Ralph Lipschitz became Ralph Lauren. I mean, it was a pretty widespread thing. I didn't even think about that. Discovered that two days ago. Well, I got to put that in the film now. So this is a journey. It's an organic journey. You know, I tell people when you're doing a journey like this, you can't look up at the mountain. It's like climbing a mountain. You cannot look up at the top. You have to be grounded, be here now. One of my favorite uh, phrases from my man, Ram Das. be here now and enjoy the journey. Focus on the journey one step at a time. Don't look at what the destination is. So I'm not sure when the yeah. film is going to be done in answer to your question. Well, I, 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 when it's done, I think you're right. I, I think uh, it, to show it to children of all ages, young adults and so on, it's so important. I, I think a lot of what you shared I knew along the way, being from a, a community where I was surrounded by many Jewish people and my best friends being Jewish, I learned so much. Um, and I can I can also say that as an Italian American, you know, Tony Bennett changed his name. You know, I'm learning. My daughter has an organization called the Italian American Leadership Network, and she's teaching me more and more about my own culture and what our people went through because. It wasn't taught to us. We didn't know. I mean, we don't have time to go into all that. But it, it, uh, I'm learning so much. But I can say for sure, my life was framed uh, very much so by the contributions of the Jewish community. Um, I believe that a lot of the values of the Jewish community are instilled in me because I was surrounded by such excellence and love of reading and, and literature and um uh, deep thinking, and I, I I feel very blessed to have 
been educated uh, in many ways uh, at Brooklyn College and uh, beyond. I have advanced degrees as well. And, um, but I do believe, you know, although my parents were rooted in education, my dad went to Georgetown, I do believe it was, you know, when I went to my friend's house, Paulette, whose father uh, I mentioned before um, had uh, survived Russian camps, I learned a lot from the Jewish community. And I, I think I, if, if we could all like be grateful to one another for the contribution, I think Italian and Italian people contribute so much to our culture. Of course, uh, African-Americans have had a profound effect on my life, a tremendous uh, um, impact. And my children will tell you um, every other word out of my mouth is um, I'm talking about the black culture. You know, it's like sometimes I forget, I go, oh, my God, I, I can't remember things. And my, and my daughter says, There's not, you know, you just have selective memory. I just talk about the African-American culture and you remember everything. So there's nothing wrong with you. You have a good memory. It's just, um, I just have invested so much of my energy into the African-American culture. I've learned so much about love and kindness and courage and forgiveness through the music and life of the African-Americans. So I think that if, a, you know, that's my hope, you know, that um, what you do, Brett, bringing people together what I do or I'm trying to do, and that, that's why I started the podcast too, my little podcast, is to try to continue that as an educator. But absolutely, because I witnessed in the classroom, you know, what you were saying, I, I actually witnessed like sort of when that happens, you know, when there's that divide sets to happen. I remember in one day in particular, uh, the children, I was, they had me, I taught individual classes and then they had me do a cluster class with 500 kids a week. Um, and so, which was, was interesting, but, um, I just remember the children, I, I didn't have the kids all day now. I just had them in segments. So I, I couldn't be as helpful if you will, but one of the students who I knew for, she was in my regular class, one little boy, she was African-American and one of, one of the, the classmates was a white young uh, boy, same age, eight, eight years old. They were best friends. And then one day he called her a racial slur. And he was eight years old. Like, I don't, like, where did that come from? And it came from his household. He heard it at yeah. home. He heard his parents use it. And, and, and she came to me with, like, I can't even tell you. Like, it, I still feel the pain in her eyes. And he also felt pain as a little boy. He didn't even, he said it. He knew, he, I don't know what he knew, he didn't know, but he certainly was sorry because he didn't mean to cause her that pain. And the mom wrote me a letter, her mom, because I was close to the family. And she said, can you help us? Because she knew where my heart was. And I spoke to both children and they became friends again, but I have to tell you, I, I don't, that was a moment <clears throat> for her that she probably won't ever forget. And for the little boy, I'm not really sure because I wasn't as close to him. So as you know, I just think teachers really have to be involved in those moments. Oh, and yeah, pay attention, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I was just wondering if you could, you know, because my work is rooted in Coltrane, um, if you could just speak to uh, quickly, what you think about Sonny Rollins 
like leading the way now with this Coltrane instead of, you know, they were best friends, right? Or really good friends, if I have yeah. that right. Um, how is he, how does his music uh, share that love supreme or that love or that sweetness? Because I know you're very close to him as well. Well, if we look back to 1957 or 58, uh, when he recorded the Freedom Suite, uh, that was right. the first uh, statement about racism on a record. I mean, Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit, certainly. But uh, in terms of somebody making an album and really addressing those issues, Sonny Rollins was the first. And then Max Roach came along. He did stuff as well and other stuff. But sadly, we don't find too many musicians making political statements. The music is a political statement. But uh, Sonny Rollins has always been outspoken about racism, about global warming. He had a record called in 1998 called Global Warming, where everybody really jumped on the bandwagon. And he is also, uh, Sonny Rollins turned me on to Noam Chomsky. So Sonny Rollins is a, is a man who's uh, not only concerned about the music, but also the world. And uh, as he gets up in, those, in his later years, he's not really very active, but certainly his music serves, serves as an inspiration uh, for people. And I've done a lot of interviews that, with him that are available on YouTube, and you can listen to what he has to say. I mean, he is the embodiment of a concerned individual who wants to make a difference in this world who at the same time happens to be just an incredible artist uh, with his work. So, uh, and also spiritual. I think, I think uh, uh, Sonny and Trade shared that because they're both very spiritual people. Uh, not necessarily uh, towards organized religion per se, but more of a, a spiritual uh, outlook on life and the way that they, they treated other people. Absolutely. And I think Sonny Rollins, um, John Coltrane, that love is, is sort of speaks to what we're trying to do to connect people and what we see in the innocence of children that 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 love, if we could keep it um, uh, focused and if the elders would do better, <laughs> we there's a there'll be there, there's hope. I, 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 I have to believe there's hope. Brett, I thank you. I think, again, your work is extraordinary. You're a very impressive well, human thank being. You. Thank and you um, thank you thank you for spending time with me today. Thank you very much. It was fun thank to get to know you. And anything I can do to support your work, you know, thank let you. me know. I mean, I think your work is, is important as well. I mean, I've done some thank teaching. I know uh, how challenging it is. And I also know how in America we don't take it seriously. We don't pay our teachers fairly. And education is extremely important, but it's kind of like been pushed to the side uh, in America. And I think that's one of the reasons we're having problems now. The school well, is I faded. Think, I think that this might be uplifting to you. I'm not giving up. I, I retired from the system for the reasons I, I, I knew that to affect change, I, I needed to uh, get out of the system. And I'm currently working with somebody quite important and uh, we're developing the Kids for Culture and Curriculum, and we'll see where it goes. You know, I, again, like you say, you just climb the mountain, and, and I, I can't look all the way up. I'm just, I just keep trying. So, yeah, um, we'll see. But thank you, thank you. I appreciate your support, and uh, um, it means a lot to me. Thank you. And well, please stay healthy. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> you too. <laughs>